What will car sales look like in a post-cash-for-clunkers world? That's today's topic on AutoLine Detroit. August car sales were the first bit of good news for the auto industry in over a year. But that sales increase was solely due to massive government subsidies. And now that the money's run out, what's going to happen in the market? Are we headed for a terrible hangover? Or will sales settle down to where they were before? Slow, but improving. To get to the bottom of what's in store for us, I've invited Rebecca Lindland on today's show. She's the Director of Automotive Research for IHS Global Insight. And joining me on my journalist panel today are Drew Winter from Ward's Auto World and Keith Naughton from Bloomberg. What does the market hold in store for the auto industry now that the Cash for Clunkers program is gone? We'll be tackling that topic right after this. Visit our website for even more great content all week long. AutoLine Daily, John's Journal, podcasts, and even more. So click over and get your all-access pass to the automotive industry at AutolineDetroit.tv. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to this discussion of AutoLine Detroit with our guest today, Rebecca Lindland, the Director of Automotive Research for IHS Global Insight. Great having you back here Thanks on the set. Thanks for having me on again. Also joining us today, Keith Naughton from Bloomberg and Drew Winter from WardsAuto.com. WardsAuto.com or Wards Auto World, what do you prefer to go by? Either one. Either Fine. one. Okay. Wards. We'll yeah. go with that. <laughs> well, Cash for Clunkers is over. Cash for Clunkers really raised sales in, in August. But uh, are we going to have a hangover from this, Rebecca? I mean, is there payback coming or no? I think there is. I think that we're on a sugar high right now, you know, and, and we're going to have the crash afterwards because we don't have the fundamentals in place. We still don't have the economy in place. You know, we don't have employment yet. Housing is still, we're seeing some you know, growth, but we still have the threat of foreclosures from people that actually, you know, had good credit but have lost their job. So I think we still don't have the fundamentals in place to support a really healthy market. What do you guys think? I mean, is it, is it going to drop down worse than it was before or come in above where it was before? Cash for clunkers? What you know, do you think I just spoke out? with Jim O'Donnell, the, the head of BMW's North American operations, and he said that um, actually their uh, new cre credit applications for new vehicles are up over 30 percent for August versus July. So he's real optimistic about uh, the coming year. Now, he didn't have that, the BMW didn't have the sort of sugar high from cash for right. clunkers that, uh, you know, a lot of other automakers have. Well, they didn't but, because there was a $45,000, you know, limit. Right. You couldn't spend more than $45,000 on a car, and that probably wipes out half of what BMW offers. Except for many, of course, and many got a big, big boost out of it. But um, I think there are some indications that, the, you know, the, the market is starting to be, consumers are more optimistic and, uh, you you know, we're obviously we're going to see some sort of dip in September, but maybe it's not as bad, I think, as, as uh, what some may expect. Well, well GM and, and Ford both said without cash for clunkers, the sales rate in August would have been about $10.5 million. 
which is horrible, but still <laughs> but higher than it was. Better. June, it was 9.7. So a little uptick. So they see the second half better, but still a bumpy ride, as they say. And so it, it, it gave us a lift, but we're not going to stay at that level or anywhere near that level. We're not. But, you know, we've been running at about 850,000 units a month. Okay, we went to, I don't know, 1.2, 1.3, 4, whatever it was for August. Now, if we drop down to 850,000, to me, that's that's not a bad deal. You know, we, we goosed the market here. We got plants going again. We got things going again. And now if we drop below 850,000, then we know that all we did was pull fit sales forward but by X amount. We are still so incredibody low. 850,000. That's bad. It's dismal. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the problem. <laughs> historically, if you look, I mean, if, if you look at how many vehicles have been sold in the U.S. average for maybe the past 25 or 30 years, it's been something around 15 million units. We're, we've been running now at, at, at below 50% of that now for something like 10 months. We have got to be building up some pent-up demand. There are a lot of people out there that are just at the edge of, I think, getting a new vehicle if they just feel a little more secure about uh, their job or uh, uh, some other economic factors, I think we're going to see some pickup. Hopefully, it's in a few months. And a, a side benefit of, of clunkers is it completely drained the inventories on dealer slots. Certainly so, small cars. Oh, my gosh. Ford said they have something like 36 days supply. So you're not going to have the sort of incentives to move the metal because there's no metal to move. And you're going to need to increase production and put more people on the line. So well, you'll get that's it, you'll, where the whole clunkers program really works, it, right? It's going to put people back to work in that regard. Uh, for now, anyway. That's yeah. my yeah, head was right. ready to explode when I started seeing some of these headlines <laughs> where, oh, you know, cash, cash for clunkers helped Ford but didn't help GM, didn't help Chrysler or whatever. Wait a minute. We know here in flyover land that, you know, uh, GM has put back a shift at Lordstown, Ohio, a small car plant. There's 1,300 people in northern Ohio going back to work that's going to have ripple effects. We We've got folks, uh, piles of overtime at, in Dearborn making Ford Focuses. We've got uh, everybody, uh, uh, Ford F-150s. There's a lot of uh, factories all across America. Then supplier factories that are all going back to work now because of cash for clunkers. And it's going to take them months to fill up that pipeline again. So they've got more work at least for a couple of months. And that's we need that stimulus now, you know, uh, here, uh, not, not six months from now. What do you make of the, the fact, I, I had a lot of dealers tell me that the, uh, the customers they saw come into their, their showrooms were people they never see, i.e. people who do not buy new cars. They only came into the market because the government was giving them a great amount of money for their clunker. And or these were people who do buy new cars, but they only buy a new car every 10 to 15 years and they just drive the wheels off them and they came out too. And if that's the case, Rebecca, we shouldn't see much of a, a hangover, a big drop off in sales. Well, I mean, we definitely had some nice gravy. There was definitely incremental sales that, that were experienced. And you have to give credit to the dealers, too, and to the manufacturers. You look at Chrysler, and they matched the program. You know, so you're getting $9,000 off. How can you not take advantage of that? Those are the best kind of sales. Are those incremental or people coming out of used cars? It's, it's an ideal situation. The question is really how many of them were. I think GM estimated today about 350,000 or so. We have an estimate about 300,000. So we're sort of in that same ballpark. That's the best part of this program are those incremental sales. 350,000, 300,000. You're saying of about the, half the, the people 000. who bought them. Right. We're true incremental volume and won't necessarily be pull-ahead sales. What do you make of this, too? Uh, I know BMW had said they think this helped break the psychology because even though year over year, BMW did not show a big increase in sales. In fact, they showed a, a decrease. But if you look month over month, you know, July to August, 
they did show a nice increase. And what they were saying is they think this broke the psychology that when you're seeing all your friends and neighbors lose their jobs or go into foreclosure, you just don't go buy a fancy new car. But now with this cars for pro, you know, cash for clunkers program, it's okay to go buy well, again is what they're reading it. You know, you can brag about the terrific deal that you got on, on the new car. It's not... You got a new car. You know, there's not a judgment anymore. It's yeah, but look at the great deal I got. And, and overall, auto sales rose for the first time in almost two years yes. on a monthly basis. So maybe this becomes the pivot point. Maybe this is when it finally turns. Well, yeah, and I think there's the other issue too, is being absorbed in the auto industry. You know, we don't we we get a, a little bit uh, uh, dull to all the new features and stuff that are on new vehicles. But I think it started up more people now shopping, looking online, and they're going, "Holy cow, that car's got blind spot detection right. of it. It's got all these new safety features that I think right. a lot of automakers are are uh, putting into vehicles. And I think that's going to be a, something that's really going to get a lot of people in the marketplace too when they see how many new really good safety features are in vehicles. Do you think, too, that we've got to ignore this year-over-year year to comparison? I, I keep saying, forget about 2008. You may as well compare car sales to the medieval ages because <laughs> it's a different world. And shouldn't we be really, and that's, this is what I'm arguing, we should look at, like, from January now forward and see is our industry sales building month to month. Right. Because to compare to a year ago, I think, is is completely misleading. And soon, as we get deeper into this year, when car sales last year were bad, we're going to start to say, hey, looks like sales are getting better on a year-to-year -year comparison. I, 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 what do you guys think? Should we just chuck this year-to-year -year comparison and go month-to-month? -month? Well, I think, you can sh I, I think you can use it, but you have to put some perspective and show, uh, you know, uh, previous month or some different ways of, of, of adding some context to the sales. Because yeah, otherwise, we're, we're comparing it to this absolute Armageddon of a sales, uh, of a sales uh, collapse, and it, it does. It, it's meaningless. Well, so, I, I think we need to be reminded occasionally, though, of how far we've fallen. Otherwise, you start thinking that 10.5 million is a great sales rate, right. when it's yeah. not. Yeah. No. It's yeah. a horrible sales yeah. rate, and, and you need to keep that in mind as you're making these comparisons. Just because we're better than June, which was 9.7, it doesn't mean that we're out of the woods. We're a long way from out of the woods, and by looking at last year and two years ago, you see that quite clearly. Yeah, two years ago, if we had said sales would drop down to 14.5 million, that we'd go, this is a disaster. Million. This is really bad. Yep. So to drop to 9.5, I mean, we would have all jumped out the window if people told us this is what was coming. Yeah, that was a truck sales rate a couple of years ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. You're absolutely right. Also, what did you all make of this discrepancy that's come out between how the Department of Transportation reported clunker sales and Edmonds, uh, which discovered that, hey, wait a minute, uh, the government is counting vehicles by drivetrain. So the example I like to use is the Ford Escape front-wheel drive version was counted separately from the Ford Escape all-wheel drive version. And, uh, but when you put the two together, all of a sudden it jumps to number two on the list. W what do you all read into this? Politics. Sales by sin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it seems like the government was gaming the system to make it look like Americans were embracing small, fuel-efficient cars, when in fact what Americans were embracing was pretty close to the cars they have been embracing, which is smaller SUVs, pickup trucks, the things that are not politically correct, but the things that keep Detroit rolling. Yeah, because on the government list, uh, the Ford F-150 did not make the top 10. The Chevy Silverado did not take, make the top 10. But when you add it up, the way the industry has always reported sales, which is very weird how the government came up with its own way of counting, 
All of a sudden, F-150, I think, was number four on the list, and the Chevy Silverado was number eight on the list. And it, it just, boy, it sure makes me wonder what the heck's going on well, there. And it changes the, the sort of us versus them dynamic that, that came into it, which was unfortunate. Uh, everyone presumed that it was a benefit to the Japanese and the Koreans, which it was, disproportionately. But, but the, the big three also played in this game, too, uh, quite substantially, and you don't see it by the way that that top ten list came out. Well, except on the other hand, though, I mean, even with, with the way they, they spun it, with the Corolla on top, that still had you at hundreds or thousands of Toyota dealers that benefited from that. Civic, which was number two, I mean, they, they build a Civic in, in Indiana and Ohio in huge factories there. That helps, that helps American workers. You can go all the way down the list and figure out that no matter really how you spun it, it, it put a lot of Americans back to work. It helped a lot. It, no, it did. But the, the, the downfall for the big three is all around the country, everybody's read the reports that said, yep, the Detroit three got their clocks cleaned again. Uh, look, everybody went out and bought imports. And there's this huge demand for small cars. And, and there's a huge yeah. demand for small cars. <laughs> and what I'm more stunned about is not the government getting this all wrong, is the big three haven't said a word about this. And I, I, I called GM, and they essentially said, well, you know, they just bailed us out. and They, own <laughs> they don't really want to say anything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe we better not attack these guys. But Ford, curiously, I never really got an answer out of them as to why they're not saying anything about it. And, you know, my whole thing is you guys have a perception problem. Mm-hmm. And the way the government reported these sales has only magnified that perception problem. Why aren't you doing something about it? Ford especially, which did really good. They captured three of the top four positions in cash for clunkers. Again, the proper way of counting. I think they don't, don't want to appear defensive. Yeah. You know, they, they, it's, it's always this idea of, you know, protesting too much, you know. And so they don't want to appear, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, this is what we did. And so I think it's a very difficult message to get across without appearing like they're spinning the numbers. We know how sales are accounted for because that's what we do. But to come out and say, but that's not how you count them, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it could make them look like they're defensive. And so I think what our responsibility as as people within the industry is to, to try when we have the opportunity to get the story out that, you know, what is correctly how traditionally have been reported, how sales have been reported. Well, and the reality that it distorts that I think is even more significant than the U.S. makers versus the Japanese or the Koreans is what Americans are actually buying. Right. It, it, it lends the impression that Americans have completely embraced small cars when, in fact, Americans have, have not completely embraced small cars. Before cash for clunkers, the share small car share was down over last year because, guess what? Gas prices yeah. are down over last year. What Americans are doing is they're moving down a step. They're not moving down to tiny cars like the Europeans because our gas prices aren't as high as the Europeans. Well, and we drive the world's largest vehicles now, so we have a long way to go. Yes. <laughs> so we're <laughs> you know? driving slightly smaller cross-utility vehicles based on cars instead of right, trucks. Right, exactly. And, and, you get a lot of brownie points you're get, getting out of the expedition. Solution. <laughs> an escape is what an American wants, that yes. sort of size car. Right, mm-hmm. that's exactly. And, and, and tiny B cars have not been broadly embraced by the mainstream. But I think you nailed it there, Keith. I, I, I think this has created the perception, and maybe deliberately the DOT wanted it to, to create that perception with cafe laws coming and saying, yeah, everybody loves these small cars. But I think you're right. Uh, it, it creates that perception where that is not really the reality. And what you have now is the automakers doing this incredible buildup in compact and subcompact cars. You're going to have 7.5 million 
of those cars being built in North America by 2015. Which is a huge number. It's huge. You would need a, you would need a market in the United States of 33 million vehicles, more than twice as large as the record of 17.4 million in 2000. It's just not going to happen. We're going to have overcapacity in small cars. Well, and this looks a little terrifying because it sounds like, too, maybe they want us to turn us into Europe, you know, and we are not Europe. Right. We, we don't have uh, as many people living in these dense populations. We don't centers. need to be Europe. No, and, and you know? <laughs> well, Kevin, <laughs> except for one thing, we have this law in the books called corporate average fuel economy, which now has this CO2, ad, you know, adjunct right. to it. And if you look at the, the 35 miles per gallon that we have to hit by 2015, that's about where Europe's fleet is today. So right. we're going to look like Europe from a fleet standpoint. But we have, I mean, you, know, we, you look at hybrids, 2% of the market, which means 98% of people are picking something else. We haven't seen any kind of migration. Hybrid penetration goes, you know, maybe it's 1.8 one month and then 2.2 the next month. We are still, and without the Prius, it's nothing. Prius is still half the market. Exactly. And half of them are sold in California. <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't seen the trend to support CAFE, and that's why I think the government needs to try and build up this false sense of excitement about these small cars that isn't there. Well, I, th I think what we're going to see, Ford, I think, is, is, has probably the most practical strategy where we're just going to see every engine gets a couple less cylinders mm -hmm. and, it gets, and, and we get uh, uh, more technology, turbocharging and direct injection and everything where you get more power-dense engines and we still have uh, some pretty fast, powerful vehicles, but they get better fuel economy. And when you multiply that over the whole vehicle lineup, that's going to get us part of the way there. Well, hopefully we've learned something from Cafe in the 70s, you know, when, when they completely had these under powered station wagons and everyone said, I don't want that. And the dealer's like, well, we have an SUV over here. You want that? Okay, yeah. that works. <laughs> so we have to learn and, and try and mitigate the unintended consequences uh, of trying to, to change the powertrains and trying to change technology. And hopefully we've been able to do that with direct injection and turbocharging. I don't Diesels know. I, I mean, I, I think what's going to happen if fuel prices remain relatively low is that the price of vehicles that people really want pickups, SUVs, larger cars, I don't mean big, but bigger than what CAFE would normally have you going for, uh, it, it's just not going to happen because I, I think the prices of those vehicles will go up because if gas prices are where they are right now, people are not going to go out and buy B-class or subcompact cars by the seven and a half million uh, year rate. Well, and the risk of that overcapacity is much larger than the risk was of overcapacity on trucks because there's simply no margin for error. The profit margins on small cars are so thin that if you have to discount a penny, you've lost your profit. In SUVs, when we had overcapacity, you could discount $4,000 and still make money on the thing. <laughs> Great point. Right. So, so having overcapacity in small cars could ruin you. So where's the market? You're going in this, this regard. For this, like the car truck split? Well, not just that, but going forward. I mean, what do you think is going to happen with this glut well, of small cars that are coming? I mean, we've, we've have this situation where on the one hand we have the forecast that we sort of have to do, you know, to meet CAFE standards. And then we have the forecast that we think is really going to happen. And we've actually started to maintain a separate sales-based powertrain. We call it a study because it doesn't really match our standard forecast because you have to assume that you've got to meet CAFE standards. You know, so we have, we sort of have this two separate parallel universes where you look at consumer demand and we've, we've 
kind of forced in some small vehicles into the forecast. And you say, all right, well, you know, if everyone sells 30,000 of each model, you're going to start to reach two and a half, three million units, even though you look and say, we, you have to assume that consumer demand is going to change somehow. You ha we have to assume some kind of consumer evolution, and whether that's fuel, fuel economy or some kind of more of a government view of it. But it is, it's a very difficult situation right now because consumers aren't demanding these vehicles yet. It's being pushed onto them. And, and so making a forecast is really very tricky right now because you have to kind of migrate a little bit away from what consumers are demanding and what's being pushed on them. Yeah, I think the only thing we can hope for is uh, uh, every time you see any positive news about the economy, you see oil prices go up. And I think if, if the economy does continue to, to, to go well, I mean, we may see a, 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 a parallel rise in oil prices back up to 4 or $5 a gallon, and maybe that'll solve the problem. Well, not, not with the kind of capacity you're talking about. No. But uh, uh, that will maybe solve part of the problem. Well, it would create demand for these cars, and, uh, and maybe you don't have to discount them or anything, so your margins are a little bit protected in that regard. But I think you're right. I think as uh, the U.S., but especially the global economy, recovers, oil, in fact, I think all commodity prices are going to be on the rise. In fact, it's been interesting to watch uh, the price of iron ore, which is the key ingredient in making steel, has uh, taken a big rise of late. And, uh, and we know there's a steel shortage out there right now, too. So, yeah, I mean, uh, a year from now, we might be all complaining about how much the economy's recovered. <laughs> the problem is we went back and looked back into the 70s and the gas price crisis of the 70s, and consumers adapted, not their behavior, but they, they, they actually adapted their wallet to the price of gas. Mm -hmm. And even though we saw two- and three-month spikes of compact and subcompact cars, it tumbled right back down again. As, as, as the gas price stayed high and stayed as a percentage of their disposable income, they adapted to it, and they stuck with their larger vehicle. So we still haven't seen a sustainable move. Well, I think we saw it last year when it hit four bucks a gallon. But just for a couple of months. But just for a couple of months. Yeah. No, you're right. That's the problem is we haven't seen a long-term trend yet. Well, and, and the 411, which was the peak last year, is nowhere near the 7 or $8 you pay in Europe. The only way you get there, and, and the price of oil is projected to go to about $80, $85 a barrel by 2012. So the, and last summer it was over $100 a barrel, right? So the only way you get above 411 is you tax the heck out of gasoline mm -hmm. like they do in Europe, and that's not going to happen. In here, Massachusetts, right? they tried to raise the gas tax to, by 19 cents last summer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely under no, no circumstances. Way. So instead they raised the overall sales tax by one and a quarter percent for the first time in like 20 years. People were so, it, it was absolute pandemonium that they were going to raise the gas price, the gas tax. But, oh, but go ahead and raise the sales tax. The most regressive uh, you can do. Right? No <laughs> sense whatsoever. <laughs> don't, just don't touch my gas tax. Well, people who watch, you know, gas prices assiduously, and they'll drive way out of their way yeah. to save a penny or I two a gallon people. and burn it all up in the process. <laughs> but that's meaningful right. to them. They see it every single day. They see that money coming up. Or not every single day, but at least once a week, maybe two times a week, they're pulling that money out. And 
I think, in a, especially the the psychological barrier was for people with bigger vehicles. You hit a hundred bucks a fill up, and that gets people's attention. Yeah, I had a Porsche Cayenne at the peak as my media car, and I'm like eighty dollars. That's a really cute pair of shoes that I just put in <laughs> that gas tank. You know, hey, we're going to have to wrap this up right here. But Rebecca Lindland, thanks so much thanks for coming so much in for and being on the show again with us. Keith Notton, great having you back here, and Drew Winter, you too. And I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. Visit our website for even more great content all week long. AutoLine Daily, John's Journal, podcasts, and even more. So click over and get your all-access pass to the automotive industry at AutoLineDetroit.tv. As I mentioned, we're going to run the cameras and continue the conversation. You can catch that right now at our website at AutoLineDetroit.tv. And if you need more than a weekly dose of industry information, check out AutoLineDaily.com. It's a six-minute daily webcast of what's going on in the global automotive industry. Then on Thursday nights at 7 p.m., it's time for AutoLine After Hours, the first live webcast dedicated to the automotive industry. Join me and Peter DeLorenzo, the publisher of AutoExtremist.com, for the most unlikely show about the auto industry. But that wraps up this show. For all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.